if you would please turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament little prophet of, uh, of um, Micah. And stand for the reading of God's Word, as was the custom in the Old Testament. Let's start our reading in chapter 4 and verse 12 and read down through verse 6. Let's hear the word of the Lord. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I make your horn iron. And I will make your hoofs bronze, and you shall beat in pieces many peoples, and shall devour their gain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. Now must your troops, O daughters of troops, lay sieges lazed against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who will be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she is born in labor, has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He shall stand and shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace when the Syrian comes into the land and treads on our palaces, then we will rise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrians when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. The grass withers the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Please be seated. Go to prayer. Let's pray for this. me as I preach this text. Pray for yourselves as you sit under the proclamation of God's word. Let's pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we know that uh, the proclamation of your word serves no purpose unless it is blessed to us by the work of your spirit. Our Lord, we pray that we will become more like Christ. We ask you to give us an understanding of this text. Pray that you would help me to proclaim it faithfully. Be with your people, Lord. Pray that it would make us serve to have an influence upon us uh, to be more like the Lord Jesus. Oh, our God, how we ask for your grace and help. In Christ's name, amen. Malachi is one of the minor prophets. They are called minor prophets not because they are less important than the others, but because of the length of the prophets. They're much shorter than Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, so they have that nomenclature that is placed upon them. We also need to remember as we read this and study this what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so these texts from the Old Testament, these minor prophets are important for us as they are given to us by God for the use and grace being administered to his people. 
Micah was one who prophesied for about 66 years. He don't know exactly the date, but we know the time because it tells us in the scriptures that it is that these kings were ruling in uh, over uh, Israel in that day. And uh, that's how we can put our point of time to the ministry of Micah. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Merseth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So we can date this uh, fairly well to be in the uh, 8th century. And it is also interesting to note that this prophet is never identified as a prophet. And yet, one of the clearest texts in the Old Testament concerning the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he was going to be born, is presented to us in Micah and the second chapter. Now, don't let this pass by you. This was given by inspiration of God hundreds of years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot say that it's coincidental. It's impossible to say it's coincidental. Just as the prophecies throughout the Old Testament dealing with the birth of Christ, where he would be born, what would happen to him, are so clearly portrayed to us in the Old Testament. And so the marvel of it here, again, God's sovereignty uh, and his plan for redemption coming to fruition in the work that is predicted here in the book of Micah, so many, many centuries before the Lord Jesus Christ was ever born. And as we look at this this morning, we recognize that one of the things that comes out to us in this text is the need that we have for a shepherd. Why do we need a shepherd? What is all this business of having a shepherd in the Old Testament? Well, you know that uh, the uh, sheep are terribly stupid. I'm not saying you're all stupid. (laughs) But sheep are terribly dumb, uh, slow-witted, naive. Uh, and they need someone to guide them. Well, spiritually, I say that spiritually, we are terribly dumb. We are terribly naive spiritually. And we need someone to help us and to guide us. And that's what Christ is, does for us and has done for us. I love the text, Psalm 23, Psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. And he describes in the remainder of that psalm what God does for him. Lays me down in green pastures, anoints my head with oil, my cup overflows. And then at the end of that, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there's that confidence at the end of Psalm 23 of everlasting life. Well, we need a shepherd. Well, here, the promise of the shepherd to come is given to us in this text. We'll see this this morning. And that because we need a shepherd as God's people, because we need a shepherd as far as redemption and salvation is concerned, because we need a shepherd to support us and uphold us in the days that we have here to live our lives, God, by his grace, has given us that shepherd in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me say this. If you have ever been in a time in your life when you receive news that's disastrous, unexpected, heart-wrenching, and to know that presence of God that is with us in those times of our lives, that's Christ. As we, lead, uh, as we learn the Bible and we uh, apply the Scriptures to us, that's Christ shepherding us and leading us along. Well, here it's promised to us way back so many centuries ago uh, before Christ was born in this book of Micah. We want to see three things this morning. The promised shepherd comes to an undeserving people. And the promised shepherd will be a king. And the promised shepherd will be God himself. God in the flesh. So the first thing then, the promised shepherd uh, comes to an undeserving, undeserving people according to God's infinite goodness. Israel at this time, was very corrupt. It's amazing, is it not, to think about this. That these people uh, that had been called by God, 
And as it says in the book of Deuteronomy, out of all the nations in the world, you only have I loved. And it talks about he chose them not because they were mighty in power, they were the smallest indeed, but because he loved them. These people who had seen the miracles uh, of God getting them out of the land of Egypt, these people who had the prophets, these people who had these privileges given to them as God's covenant people, now are involved in a terrible corruption. We can say the same thing today, that we are uh, as, have a greater responsibility. We are not on the back side of Calvary. We are on this side of Calvary. Redemption has been accomplished. We know who Jesus is. We know what he has done for us. And yet we still see the church being terribly corrupted in our own day. Why? Because people would rather enjoy the privileges, would rather enjoy the pleasures of sin than the privileges of salvation. We see it again and again and again. Somebody preached a sermon. I'm not going to tell you who it was. If there was ever heretic heresy being put forth from the pulpit, it was that sermon. All he said was, God wants you rich. If they want me rich, if you did, I'd be like uh, uh, Trump. Right? He didn't say anything of sin, nothing of God's grace, nothing of Christ in that sermon. It was not, listen, it was not a Christian sermon. These things should bother us. We hear that kind of thing coming forth from the pulpit. God gave us His Son to be our shepherd unless we acknowledge, unless we admit our need for that. Unless we acknowledge our need for the forgiveness of our sins, we are not going to come to Christ. To tell somebody that the pleasures of this world are more important than the gospel is absolute heresy. There is no greater treasure that we can have than Christ. Look, you can lose your health, you can't lose Christ. You can lose your fortune, you can't lose Christ. You can lose your family, you can't lose Christ. I love that hymn, um, It is well with my soul, the man had lost his children. You know the story. And they were sailing to England, and uh, the ship went down. And he lost all of his children, except for his wife. She survived. He gets on his way to England to see his wife. And from what I understand about this story, he tells the captain, let me know when we come to the place where the ship went down. Christ, that beautiful hymn of faith. It is well with my soul. Unless you're one who is in tune to God through Jesus Christ, unless you're one who sees him as your Savior, you could never, ever say that. Ever. But you see, in the, in the hymn, he goes all the way to eternity, to the last day, to the consummation of the ages, the strolls, uh, the, the sky being opened as a scroll, Christ ascending. That's why he can sing God's praises, because of who Christ is and what Jesus has done for him in his life. Well, Israel had become very, very corrupted. They were oppressing the poor. They were worshiping idols. Uh, there was corruption that was common among them. They were living like pagans. And again, how we can take warning from this, how easily, how easily we are uh, dissuaded, how easily we are uh, called off track in our following after our God and our Savior, how easily the world becomes more important to us than the things that are spiritual. How easily we give in to the temptations that come to us 
even for a brief moment of pleasure. How easily we get involved in things that seem to cool our affections for Christ. The people of old knew better. They knew better. And yet they gave themselves over to these things as even as foolish as idolatry. Now, what was the problem? They didn't believe God's word. They didn't believe God. If you don't believe the Bible, if you don't believe what God tells you in the scriptures, if you don't believe that God is with us always, that God loves us, that God has provided for us redemption in Christ Jesus, if you don't believe the promises that God has given to you, and then you're going to abide in rebellion. There's no alternative. Uh, we, 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 we can't simply live our lives in neutral. Either you're going to be one who is following after Christ, or you're going to be one who is not following after Christ. And it is incumbent upon us to follow after Jesus every day, every moment, every day, every moment, every moment, every day. As we live, we are to live our lives for his glory. And to bring honor to him. Well, the spiritual leaders in Micah's day were very rebellious. They're going through the motions. But their heart is not involved in it. Isaiah 29, 13, the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. And the commandments taught by men are not to be taken seriously. And so there is no fear and no respect in their eyes of our God, because of what they're being taught by their teachers. In Matthew 15, 8, Jesus said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but not their heart. Their heart is, not, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Who's Jesus talking about here in this text? Talking about the religious leaders. Talking about the people who are supposed to know and teach the Bible. They have, become, they have become corrupted. When you have theological professors who basically say this, that had you had a camera, if you had a camera at the tomb on the resurrection morning, I don't know that you could capture the resurrection. Yeah, you could. If you had a camera set up, you would catch that. You would see the stone being moved. You would see the angel coming down to deny that. It's to deny the integrity of Scripture and to deny the gospel itself. To have a man who denies the deity of Christ being ordained, that's denying the gospel. And so just because someone is a religious leader, just because someone is behind the pulpit, just because someone is teaching seminary does not mean at all that they're faithful. Seminaries so often are where liberalism creeps into the church. When you have professors denying those things that are central to the heart of the, of the gospel, then that is the end result of it, a polluting of the gospel of Jesus Christ, influencing of young men who are studying to go into the gospel and yet, I mean, to the, you know, the work of the church, and yet they are terribly, terribly uh, deluded. So because their hearts were far from God, they had no love for God, no concern for his honor. That's where these men are. And what happens here is God sends forth a challenge to them. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us with the rod. They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Gather your troops together, he says. And what he's doing here is he is summoning, summoning the prophet, summoning uh, those leaders uh, to get their army together. 
Go ahead and get your armies together. Go ahead and assemble yourselves so you may fight in the battle against those who are coming against you. Go ahead and defend yourself. This is the challenge that God gives to them. The idea is no matter what they do, they're not going to win. And it's interesting that the Lord is going to use the Assyrians in the northern kingdom, and they are going to become his servants. He's going to bless the armies of Assyria to come against his own people. The victories that Assyria had were theirs because of God's providence. God is chastising his own people because of their sin. And so he says here, he has laid a siege against us, his children, those he has protected, those he has fought for throughout the years. That protection, that love had been taken away from them. And now God is giving them over. And we can say, well, how can God do that? Well, they knew better. So far as God is concerned, Israel has become persona non grata because of their sin, because of their rebellion. And they were warned about this. It's not as if God did not tell them this was going to happen. It's not as if God said, you can worship other gods, and I'm kind of tenderhearted. I'm not going to do anything about it. You can be unfaithful to me. It's okay. I'm not that strict, just as long as you're happy. That's not what happened. You read this, you come to understand the absolute hatred that God has for sin. And the absolute judgment and justice God shows in dealing with Israel of old in this fashion. They thought they could live as they wanted to live. They could worship idols. They could do what they wanted to do. And nothing would happen to them. And yet God shows them here they're going to pay the price for their lawlessness. Because our God is a God who is righteous. Our God is also a God who is a God of justice. And here's what happens. And this is dealing with Babylon. So you have here the end of the northern kingdom, the end of the southern kingdom as well. With the rod, they shall strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And listen to what is written in 2 Kings 25, 3 through 7. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between two walls by the king's garden. The Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. They captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon in Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered his sons and made him watch. Then they blinded him. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Who was behind this ultimately? It's God. Ultimately, God was behind this. He's not to blame. He is not one who causes people to sin. We know that from the scriptures. He is too holy, too, too righteous to commit sin. But he brings judgment against sin and judgment against leaders who thwart his warning. And here, this king, uh, Zedekiah, was forced to watch his children be killed and taken away into captivity and blinded. Some of you know this. Things pop in my head. Maybe I shouldn't say them. I don't know. Uh, my grandfather was in uh, Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution. And uh, I think I've told some of you all this before. But anyway, they, they told him to renounce Christ. If he didn't, they were going to kill his children. Well, he wouldn't renounce Christ. And they, they made him watch them kill his children and his wife. 
And he walked for three days to escape from Russia. The price being paid for faithfulness in that case. Here in uh, Micah's uh, prophecy, uh, there is a judgment that comes upon them because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Here judgment came upon, not from God, but a trial came in God's providence upon my grandfather for faithfulness. Are we willing to follow after Christ that closely? We stay committed to Jesus even if we had to pay a price for doing so. Well, the sad thing is here in Micah's day, they were not being faithful at all. They were being very unfaithful. And so they paid the price. The northern kingdom fell in 722. The southern kingdom fell in 586 B.C. And what could they do for this coming judgment? Nothing. He says again, muster your troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. What could they do to prevent this? Nothing. God again and again and again had mercy upon them, was patient with them, again and again sent prophets to call them to repentance. Again and again they came to repentance, and again and again they rebelled. There comes a point when God says, that's enough. That's enough. Al Martin was preaching one time. I heard the sermon. He said, it's a wonder God doesn't rend the heavens open and come out screaming as far as the church is concerned. Enough. Well, here they had worn out the patience of God, and God is going to deal with them, and there's nothing they could do. They're going to receive their comeuppance for their lawlessness, for their rebellion against God. God notices our sin. God hates it. And here in this case, God brought them to ruin because of their lack of repentance in the hardness of their heart. What do they learn? Well... Is their own fault to disregard the commandments of God. You don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull the mask of the oil on ranger. And you don't mess around with God. And we get into this notion that he's just our big friend. God, Christ is our friend. He's also our God and our judge. And it is that as we live our lives, we have to honor him as that. Christ was born in the world without any fanfare. We learn that from the text as we keep on going down and looking. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who will be ruler of Israel. There was no fanfare when Christ was born. And no one really knew about it. Uh, His parents knew about it. The wise men knew about it. And the shepherds knew about it. But other places did not know about this. Can you imagine that? God taking flesh upon himself. And other places not knowing it. You had the angels coming, announcing this marvelous birth, this great thing that had happened. God incarnate. Uh, Here, God taking on flesh and living among us. Emmanuel, God with us. But very few people knew about it. Very few knew what was happening. And we know from the description given here to us that kings are not born in stables. He's not born and put into a trough, a feeding trough. Kings are not born in having strips of what is found to be placed upon them, swaddling clothes. Kings are born in palaces. Kings are born with much fanfare, which much, much announcement. Kings are born uh, with uh, a great deal of uh, uh, notoriety, but not so with God. 
Not so with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The world at large had no idea this was taking place. Listen to this. The greatest event that's ever happened in our history is the birth of Christ. The greatest event that's ever taken place is the birth of Jesus. Prophesied in the Old Testament, coming to fruition at the right time as God planned it. God made flesh. You know, we, we see the creches, we see the little baby Jesus in the, in the manger. But let us go beyond the, that to recognize who that was that was born. John 1, the first three verses, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Him. Christ is Creator. The very one that spoke and brought things into being took flesh upon himself and was dependent upon parents, his mother and his father, to take care of him. How this demonstrates the great humility on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The great God of all creation, humbling himself and taking flesh upon himself And we read in the book of Philippians, he did not consider equality with God something to be selfishly clung to, but emptied himself, making himself of no reputation. And yet the one that was in the manger was one that was to be worshipped and adored. God in the flesh, who came into the world to die for us, that we might have life in him. So much so the angels that sang of his birth adored him because of the great uh, beginning, if you will. Uh, Empirical evidence now is the unfolding of the plan of redemption with the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Soon he would be on the road to living his life to become a sacrifice for us on the cross of Calvary. The plan of the ages. Notice how it describes it here in the text. Um, uh, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth to me one who will be a ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. I love that phrase. You, see, you read it again in Daniel, chapter 7, the night vision, where he's called the ancient of days. What does this mean when it talks about the eternality of Christ? The divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ described here in these words. That Christ is everlasting. He is eternal. And at one point in his life, one point in time, he took flesh upon himself that he might become a great shepherd to his people. And so this little place, Bethlehem, was not even counted when they were dividing up the land. It was so small, so insignificant. And yet, out of it came one who would be the ruler of God's people, Israel. And that is the New Testament church, the church. Christ, born in a most inauspicious beginning, whose origins are auspicious. Eternal, everlasting God, taking flesh upon himself at the right moment so that we might have life. And it's important that we recognize the reason that he was born in Bethlehem. That was the city of David. The city associated with the birth of King David the king. Now Christ born in that same city to fulfill the promise given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He shall have a son. 
shall be on the throne forever. The only way that comes to fulfillment is in Christ. He lives forever. Have you ever watched a clock with hands on it? Not the ones with the digits. The hands on it. Not, the, not a minute hand. Forget the minute hand. It's hard to see those hands move. You stare at it. You stare at it forever, it seems, and the hands have not gone anywhere. They move so slightly. Do we get impatient as we wait for the return of our Savior? We live in a world where the opposition to the church is becoming more and more obvious. It seems to me. Christ is more and more openly hated. The church is despised. Christians as well are detested. And we may find ourselves at times becoming disillusioned perhaps with uh, the church. Lorraine Bettner. Some of you may know who Lorraine Bettner was. Lorraine Bettner wrote, uh, he wanted to be a preacher, but he didn't have the gifts. He was a writer of great books. He disassociated himself with the church, became so disillusioned with the church. He lived in Missouri, lived out in the, kind of the wilderness of Missouri. And someone who was in seminary with me went to see him and visit with him. He was an old man he was in his 80s. And uh, he had become so disillusioned with the way the church was conducting itself that he basically just quit going to worship. Again, he was old. He was sickly. But the fact that he had become so disillusioned with the church... That he quit going. We can ask why is that? Well, here we can ask the question, how faithful is the church in presenting and defending the gospel of Christ? Always. How faithful is the church in standing against the fray that comes against it? Is the church willing again and again to change this message that's given to us in Micah chapter 5? about this one who would come, about this one who would be the ancient of days, taking flesh upon himself, about this one who would shepherd his people Israel. Are we uh, at the church in a position to, we do not want to be too focused on these truths of Scripture because to do so would disassociate people, would, uh, would upset people to, to be confronted with their sin. And so the church ignores some of the truths of Scripture. And yet, as we read this, we recognize that we must be true to God's word. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. We are in the midst of the battle. It appears at times that uh, the ungodly are getting the upper hand upon the church. We must endure much to be faithful. Christians... Redemption has been accomplished according to God's promise, according to his word given to us. Redemption has been accomplished. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his, and we are free from the condemnation that sin brings because of the Lord Jesus Christ. As men become against the church, their greatest efforts will fail. The church will survive. The church will stand. God has purchased the church by the life and death and resurrection of his son.
promised so many centuries ago. Those who would come against the church will not have victory. And ultimately, according to what we read here in the text, that we will one day have peace. He shall be our peace, we read here in the Bible. Do you trust Christ? As we get into this season, uh, let your mind and heart go uh, from uh, the manger to uh, the empty tomb. As you recognize again that Christ is with you always, no matter what we face in this life, do you love him? Do you trust him? Is he your Savior? Are you looking to Jesus for your salvation? Or are you religious? That's what these people were. These people in Micah's day were religious people. And yet they were unfaithful people. May it be said about Southwest, they're faithful. They may be small. They're faithful. That's where we want to be. We want to be faithful to Christ as his church members, as his visitors, as those who know him and love him. To be faithful to him. To be faithful to believe in the Bible. To be faithful to living out our faith before him in all faithfulness. And then don't be discouraged by the things that we see as we face as we, the church comes to op, face opposition. Christ rules. He is going to be evident in his victory one day when he comes back again. That great one who was born for our sakes who lived for our sakes, who died for our sakes, who was raised for our justification. He is our peace. Let's pray.